The opinions expressed on the Rob Report are the opinions of the host, participating callers, and or listener emails, text, and or letters, and are not necessarily the opinions of WDAY or Forum Communications. Good afternoon, Rob Port 970, WDAY AM 93.1 FM. Welcome to your Friday afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy to be with you. Uh, we got Eric in. Ben's been out the last couple days. Eric's in with us today. Eric, how you doing? I'm, I'm great. Friday afternoon, I am set to go. Yeah, I, for I hope sure. you're not going to make me think this afternoon. Well, uh, I, I can't make any promises, Eric. You don't have to think if you don't want to think. All right. It's optional. Thinking's optional. Um, but uh, I'm going to do my thing. Uh, we got a couple of good guests coming up. Uh, House Majority Leader Al Carlson. And this is probably the hottest legislative race in the state. I mean, let's, uh, the North Dakota Democratic Party doesn't have a lot of chances in most of the races across the state. Most of the statewide races are, are pretty pretty certain going to be up, up to and including the U.S. House race, going to be a pretty pretty certain outcomes. Uh, the Senate race, um, a toss-up, obviously. Um, the legislative races, I think, probably more of the same. I don't think you're going to see much of a change in the, the makeup of the state legislature. However, one place that Democrats are targeting is District 41. That's House Majority Leader Al Carlson. He is, uh, he is in that, um, he is the lone Republican left in that, uh, that district that has been trending towards the Democrats for a couple of cycles now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people thinking he could he could lose that seat, which for Democrats, even though it might not change at all the political power structure of the state legislature, um, you know, for them knocking off the majority leader. And, and, and frankly, somebody I mean, Democrats have been targeting Al Carlson for a long time. I mean, you listen to their messaging. They've been they've been hitting on it. They've been, you know, perpetrated that, that Al Carlson, some sort of a pu- puppet master for his his caucus, which, by the way, anybody who follows the legislature knows that people um, Carlson doesn't control his uh, he's the leader, obviously, but he doesn't. Republicans in the legislature do not vote in lockstep by any stretch of the imagination. If anybody who who watches the legislature knows that. Um, so anyway, Carlson, um, he's going to be on the program at one o'clock. We'll talk with him also at one thirty. Now, yesterday, Eric, I was at the Greater North Dakota Chamber of Commerce uh, event in Bismarck, their policy summit event. Wonderful, wonderful event. Uh, we had lots of uh, discussions, lots of debates about all sorts of things. After my show, I, I like 50. I, I literally walked out of the room where I was hosting my show, walked into the other room, uh, had to, um, you know, just basically get everything ready, was introduced and went straight up on stage to moderate a, a panel discussion about what is now, now that the official numbering is out, measure one on the statewide ballot. That is the ethics measure, the ethics measure. Um, now, a lot of people at the, um, they, they did a poll at the end of our panel, and at the end, uh, it was something like 80 it was over 80% of the people in attendance in that audience said they opposed the measure. However, that being the case, even though most of the people at the event didn't want to, don't support measure one, their feeling was it's going to pass because this is a very busy election cycle. We have a Senate race that is, you know, drawing a lot of attention 
perhaps distracting people from other things that are going to be on the ballot. Obviously, in the media, it is being saturated right now with political advertising, the bulk of it being for that Senate race. It's going to be hard to get any sort of a, a nuanced, um, deep message out about Measure 1. And, you know, sort of the default position is, well, it's an ethics measure. Well, who wants to vote against mesh ethics? Right? I mean, if, if, if the question, if, if voters feel like they're being asked whether or not they support ethics, they're going to say they support ethics and they're going to vote yes. So the, the feeling at that event yesterday was that this measure is going to pass. I'm here to tell you, it shouldn't pass. Now, most of my criticism of the ballot measure has focused on its provenance. Most of it has focused on the fact that there's these out-of-state groups that have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the organization. There's, there's Hollywood celebrities. I, I don't know, Kirsten Dunst, Steve Carell, Jerry Bruckheimer. I don't understand why these people want to amend our state constitution in North Dakota. What do they have to do with it? But that's where their money's coming from. But there was an interesting issue that came up yesterday during the, the, the debate. And, and, and most, of, most of the panel debate on Measure 1 yesterday was about, well, the Providence thing that I just got into, where the money came from, uh, but also you know whether or not it was necessary, um, a, lot of, a lot of issues like that. But, but one thing, I, and I, I think it's something that people haven't spent a lot of time considering, are the First Amendment implications of this measure. Now, there's an organization called the Institute for Free Speech. They, they track this sort of policy across the states. Eric Wong is a senior fellow for the Institute. He's going to be on the program at 1.30. He did an analysis. If you want to read the whole thing, I've got it all linked and everything up at sayanythingblog.com. You can check it out. Um, he did an analysis of this measure, and he found that it may have some First Amendment issues. Now, specifically, here's here's the problem area. And, and remember, this measure does a lot of things. It institutes new reporting requirements. It institutes new restrictions on lobbying. Um, and it also creates an ethics committee. So it, do, it does. it's not just the creation of an ethics committee. It does lots of things. But we don't get to pick and choose which part of, parts of it we like and which parts of it you don't. You either like the whole measure or you don't. I mean, it's, 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 it's an up or down vote, right? Yeah, if, if you vote for it, the whole thing's becoming law. If you don't fall for it, then the whole thing's not becoming law. That's that's just the way it works. That's what we're being faced with. Now, there is a a passage from Section 1 of the measure. And if you want to read the whole thing, I've got it linked at sayanythingblog.com. You can find it on the Secretary of State's website. But here's – it's kind of a lengthy section. But let me read this to you because this is at the crux of, of the problem that this measure is and, and probably why even if voters approve it, I'm not even sure it becomes law right away because I'm pretty sure it gets challenged in the courts almost immediately. And and I would imagine maybe a judge would, would put in place, uh, would, would enjoin the law from going into effect until it's, it's litigated. But here's, here's the section I'm talking about. This is extremely problematic from a first amendment perspective. I quote from section one of the measure. The Legislative Assembly shall implement and enforce this section by enacting, no more than three years after the effective date of this article, laws that require prompt, electronically accessible, plainly comprehensible public disclosure of the ultimate and true source of funds spent in any medium in an amount greater than $200 adjusted for inflation to influence any statewide election, election for the Legislative Assembly, statewide ballot issue election, or to lobby or otherwise influence state government action 
Now, consider the implications of just how broadly. I, I realize there were a lot of words there. But let me drill down on a couple of passages here. They're, they're going to require the disclosure of, quote, funds spent in any medium in greater in, uh, in an amount greater than $200 adjusted for inflation. So if you spend more than $200 in 2018 money in any medium, which means if you if you start a blog and you spend more than $200 uh, hosting on hosting or designing or whatever, and then you use that blog to say, well, this politician stinks or that politician's great or vote for this ballot measure or don't vote for that ballot measure or, or to say, hey, the, the state of North Dakota uh, ought to raise the speeding limits or, or the state of North Dakota uh, ought to spend more money on uh, you know, addiction counseling, whatever your issue is. If you spend $200, it doesn't matter if you're a political campaign. It doesn't matter if you're a private citizen. It doesn't matter if you're a lobbying. It doesn't matter. Anybody who spends more than $200 in 2018 dollars. I mean, so there's also an inflation adjuster here, too. So down the road, if you're thinking, well, gosh, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, hold, hold, hold an event in my neighborhood to, uh, you know, speak out about, you know, property taxes in my local government. Uh, if you buy $200 worth of beer and hamburgers and hot dogs uh, and everything, you're going to have to disclose that. as a pri- And you might be no more than a private citizen trying to hold a, uh, an event for your neighbors that's going to be covered by this and if it's 20 years hence and this is in law you're going to have to get out an inflation calculator and try to figure out how much you spent in the context of 2018 dollars or 2019 or whatever this takes effect right which then begs the question which which inflation calculator are we using but but even even setting that aside even setting aside how, how confusing the inflation issue is, I think that's a First Amendment issue. I mean, if, you, if you're going to require a private citizen, if they're spending their own money to, uh, I don't know, take out a newspaper ad, right? Like if you if you got a bee in your bonnet because your local county commission is doing something on, uh, I don't know, property taxes or whatever it is, and you take out an ad in the newspaper and say, uh, you know, we should support this or we should oppose that or whatever it is that you're saying, whatever whatever First Amendment protected political speech you want to say, if you take out an ad in the newspaper or an ad on the radio or an ad on the Internet or you spend money to, 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 to build a blog or, or whatever it is you're doing, you're going to have to report that to the government. Now, this came up during our panel discussion yesterday, and... The proponents of the measure, Susan Weefald and uh, Dina Butcher, were the two proponents up on the stage. They just kind of laughed it off. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's a ridiculous interpretation. But I'm reading from you from, from the law. The Legislative Assembly shall implement and enforce this section by enacting no more than three years after the effective date of this article laws that require prompt, electronically accessible, plainly comprehensible public disclosure of the ultimate and true source of funds spent in any medium in an amount greater than $200 adjusted for inflation to influence any statewide election, election for the Legislative Assembly, statewide ballot issue election, or to lobby or otherwise influence state government action. Any, any medium to any influence state government action. This is, this is remarkable. Uh, and this is what our guest is going to talk about coming up later in the segment. But I mean, if, if, 
maybe you don't care that it's a, a laundry list of Hollywood celebrities spending money on this. Maybe you don't care that it's a bunch of left-wing groups that are pushing this. Maybe you don't care about any of that. You should care about this because you know what? You should be able to spend your own money to engage in your own political speech about whatever issue you want without having to, to worry about making financial disclosures to the government. That's, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty, I, I, don't, I don't even know why that would be controversial. By the way, uh, you, know, you know the practice, uh, the company I work for, the practice that they're now charging for letters to the editor to the newspaper? That charge, if it exceeded, to, I mean, if you exceeded $200 in a political cycle, spending, uh, paying to, to, to publish letters to the editor for or against candidates or whatever, that would be reportable. You would have to make a disclosure to the government. And if you didn't, there would be legal consequences. That, my friends, is scary. But we're going to continue talking about it after this break. We're going to take this break. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Take a look at we'll get into uh, more of the uh, First Amendment issues around uh, Measure 1 coming up later in the program. Uh, at one thirty. Eric Wong from the Institute for Free Speech is going to be on. And he wrote, he wrote a full analysis of this. Uh, you can go through. You can read for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. If you go to sayanythingblog.com, I've got the full text of the measure linked. I've got Wong's analysis linked. You can read my analysis as well. Uh, I don't think it's a good thing, but go to the source material. Find out for yourself. Uh, this is a news breaking this afternoon. I don't know. Have you seen this? Uh, right now, a Miss America is um, is a North Dakotan, Kara Mund, uh, which we're all very proud of. Um, but she is lashing out at the Miss America organization in a, uh, a letter that apparently she wrote to other, I, I, apparently she, she, she wrote it to other Miss America winners in, in the past. Um, and it's been circulating online. The forum uh, has an article up now. Tracy Biggs just put up an article. Uh, Tracy Briggs just put, I just called her Tracy Tracy Briggs just put up a, an article just a little bit ago. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. Here's, this is from the, uh, the beginning. Uh, the first North Dakotan crowned Miss America, Kara Mund, is striking out at the Miss America organization in a letter circulating online Friday, August 17th. In it, the Bismarck woman said Gretchen Carlson, a Minnesotan crowned Miss America in 1985 and head of the organization, is largely to blame. Uh, our chair and CEO has systematically silenced me, reduced me, marginalized me, and essentially erased me in my role as Miss America in subtle and not-so-subtle ways on a daily basis, Munn said in the letter to past Miss America winners that was leaked online. Uh, Munn said the organization has, and, and the forum tried to uh, reach Munn, but they couldn't get her uh, for comment as of this morning. Uh, Munn said the organization has treated her with disrespect by excluding her as a representative and spokesperson. Right away, the new leadership delivered an important message there will only be one miss america at a time and she isn't me to reinforce this they told me that i'm not important enough to do big interviews and that the major press is obviously reserved for gretchen uh mund said this is where it really gets interesting mund said she was uh, told she needed to mention three things at every interview she did carlson stated the me too movement carlson uh, excuse me Carlson started the Me Too movement. Carlson went to Brown University, uh, as did Munn, and Miss America remains relevant. That's interesting that they're telling Miss America to go out there and say Gretchen Carlson started the Me Too movement. I don't think that's true. I don't even think that's true. That sounds like propaganda to me. That sounds like somebody trying to pad Gretchen, Gretchen Carlson's track record. I'm pretty sure it started with Harvey Weinstein. 
And uh, what's what's the name of the guy who did? You remember the guy who who's the guy who broke that big story? I broke it in the New Yorker, didn't he? Um, gosh darn it! Now I'm forgetting the guy's name. Uh, Ronan Farrow. That's right, Ronan Farrow. That's where the Me Too movement started. Uh, Mudd said in the letter that she has been blamed for sponsors dropping Miss America because she is bad, quote, bad at social media, and that she has been banned from posting on the organization's official social media pages and accounts. Uh, Mudd's comment comes just weeks before the 2019 Miss America competition will take place Sunday, September 9th. Um, the letter is addressed to Munn's Miss America sisters. In it, she said she wanted to clarify critical comments she made uh, in a story that was published earlier this month in the press of Atlantic City newspaper. As I expected, the retribution was swift. Within 72 hours, I was told my final farewell as Miss America would be cut to a total of 30 seconds for the national telecast. Not only are they dictating my final appearance, but they are also reducing my final words. Uh, Munn said she hasn't felt like Miss America for the past eight months, adding change needs to happen. I never expected or wanted to have to be a whistleblower. I am so saddened that the board seems more inclined to look the other way than to speak out. I ask you for your help, support, and voices because I have no doubt that without them, the leadership will simply continue to push out silence and tighten security to reduce access around Miss America. Miss America is fragile right now. She needs all of us if she's going to survive. Um, Munn said Miss America's rhetoric about empowering women and openness is great. However, the reality she has lived the past year has been quite different. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to say that, that you're an organization that wants to empower women when you won't let the woman who is the representative of your organization kind of speak freely. I mean, that, I mean, I don't know that it's empowering women to, to say that, that all women have to adhere to like a certain set of talking points or, or doctrine. I don't know that that's very helpful. Anyway, uh, the the full letter is up. Uh, Tracy Briggs has got the full letter in her uh, her article, uh, which you can read at inforum.com right now. Interesting stuff. And and Miss America, um, an organization, I mean, very much in decline. I don't – I remember my family, and it's probably from stemming from the fact that I grew up with four sisters. But uh, the Miss America pageant, like, it was on constantly in my house. I – if, if it wasn't Kara Mund right now, I would have no idea who Miss America was, nor do I think I would care all that much, to be honest with you. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back, Rob Report, guiding you through your Friday afternoon. Let's uh, let's see. What else do we got here? Oh, uh, Drew Wrigley. That Drew Wrigley nomination finally came through. Uh which I am, uh, I'm, I'm happy about. I, I think it's unfortunate that it's saying, and I don't, I'm honestly, I don't know a whole lot about the holdup. Um, I'm glad it finally happened. Um, I think Drew Wrigley is going to do be a great job as our U.S. Attorney. He's held the job before. He's certainly qualified for it. I think most of you probably, probably his his highest profile. Uh, you know, he was our Lieutenant Governor, of course, for a while, uh, under uh, under under Governor Dalrymple. Uh, but also, uh, you know, before that, when he was uh, during his prior stint as U.S. Attorney, uh, he handled the Drew Shadeen case. So, uh, you know, this this isn't. This isn't like we're, he's some unknown quantity. You know, we're pretty familiar with his his work product. Uh, he did a heck of a job as U.S. Attorney. I think he'll do a heck of a job again. Um, the one thing we do know is that for whatever reason, and it's it's really weird, and it's it's weird to the point. I it really sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, Senator Heidi Heitkamp is in the the middle of a pitched battle 
to keep her, her seat in the United States Senate. Uh, or not her seat, to uh, to continue occupying uh, one of North Dakota's two seats. The seat's not hers. The seat is uh, is North Dakota's seat. Uh, one of North Dakota's two seats in the United States Senate. She's, she's working hard. And part of her pitch is, oh, look at how bipartisan I am. Look at, I, I, I'm against all of the partisan politics and everything that's out there. Oh, it's so terrible. All the petty partisan politics. And yet, when it comes to the Wrigley nomination, for some reason... Senator Heitkamp has been about as petty as you can be. Uh, we saw, I mean, she, she finally came out and just flat out opposed the nomination not that long ago. Um, after after initially trying, I mean, there were, there had been rumors, and, and John Hageman in his report, what was it, about a week and a half ago, uh, John Hageman alluded to these rumors that Heitkamp's office was the one sort of holding this up, holding this process up. Uh, he asked her about it. Senator Heitkamp, you know, she, she kind of made a, oh, you know, when did I get so so powerful comment uh, before her office had to had to backtrack it and come out and say, well, they would rather just stick with Chris Myers, uh, who is the acting U.S. attorney who is not appointed. As a matter of fact, withdrew himself from consideration for the appointment. Now, again, this is a a an appointment made by the president of the United States. It's got to be confirmed by the Senate. But for the most part, my opinion on these appointments is as long as the pre- I mean, the, the role of the Senate is to make sure that we're not, you know, appointing some sort of a crooked bozo to the job. Right. As long as the person's competent, as long as they don't have anything sketchy or whatever in their resume, they should be appointed. Elections have consequences. I felt that when President Obama was making the appointments. I felt that when President Clinton was making the appointments. I felt that when George W. Bush was making the appointments. And I feel it now when President Donald Trump's making the appointments. Unless there's some some part where they're un you know, some part of the resume which leads us to believe they're not qualified or have, have acted in some nefarious way in the past, they should be appointed. So it's it's interesting to me that Senator Heitkamp, when when she was contacted, this is this is from uh, Patrick Springer's article um, about the announcement, which happened yesterday. This is what Senator Heitkamp, right? Because Springer's going down uh, and he's quoting, you know, what what Hoven has to say about it and everything. And obviously, Hoven's a, a Republican senator, so he was you know praising Wrigley and everything. Uh, and then this is where, when Springer gets the Heitkamp comments. This is what Springer reports. I quote, Senator Heidi Heitkamp was less effusive in her statement. She praised Chris Myers, a career prosecutor who has been U.S. attorney in North Dakota since 2015. Thank you to Chris Myers, North Dakota's current acting U.S. attorney, for his outstanding uh, and continuing work to crack down on drug traffickers, violent crime, and those who abuse and exploit children in North Dakota, Heitkamp said. Now that Drew Wrigley has officially been nominated in the post, I look forward to his confirmation process moving forward in the U.S. Senate. So, I mean, kind kind of throwing some shade. There, right? I mean, no, just just kind of. How is that throwing shade? Because she thanked the 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 acting right. attorney. Who? Yeah, be, and and previously and previously she said she didn't want uh, she didn't want she wanted Myers to continue in the job. Well, but that's not what she said in this last quote. She no, thanked but you, him. Uh, but, then, but you have to. But I mean, they're both things she said. You have to consider one after the other. I think you're reading a little bit more into this than you need uh, to. I don't think so. I think I think this is the senator throwing some shade. I think she's being petty and partisan about this. I think it stems back from the fact that when Tim Purden, who was appointed 
It's a U.S. attorney directly from the Democratic National Committee. Tim Purden is a big fundraiser. Um, it's, it's hard to call anybody associated with the North Dakota Democratic Party a luminary. I mean, because they're really sort of a very small, marginalized faction. But Purden's, I, I, I guess to the extent that they have any, any big figures over there, he's one of them. And his nomination was controversial, as I think it should have been. He was appointed. It's supposed to be a non, you know, relatively non-political position. He was appointed directly from the Democratic National Committee. Now, I understand it's still a political appointment, but that gave some people some pause. His confirmation was held up a little bit. I think Heitkamp has been playing games behind the scenes, as John Hageman's early, uh, earlier report alluded to. And I think now that Wrigley's the guy, she's going out of her way to praise Myers, who, by the way, withdrew himself from consideration for this post. Like, he could have applied to be the appointee. He specifically put out a statement saying, I withdraw. Made his own career choice. But then Senator Heitkamp's out not more than a week and a half ago saying, oh, it should be Myers. Myers should stay in the job. By the way, Myers was hired at one point by Heidi Heitkamp, I believe, when she was attorney general. So those two have a relationship as well. Now, I... I don't really have anything bad to say about Chris Myers at all. I think he's somebody who's kind of caught up in a political food fight. What I think is it's it's odd. And a number of people have remarked remarked on this to me. A number of people caught what Senator Heitkamp had to say in her statement and remarked on it to me, saying, boy, this is weird. And it sticks out like a sore thumb in an election cycle where this this candidate is trying to promote herself as somebody who, who typically uh, eschews partisan politics. I, it's it's, it's kind of remarkable to watch. Now, I, I hope, uh, I, I hope uh, Wrigley's uh, appointment goes through because you know what? It's important that we have a political appointment to these positions. I, I don't like that we're dragging all of this stuff out. They're presidentially appointed positions for a reason. Elections have consequences. The people who win, unless they're they're just appointing completely incompetent bozos to these jobs, their appointments should go through. And if you don't like the sort of appointments that they make, you have uh, you know you have an opportunity to to have a reckoning for that on election day. That's the way the system's designed. So I, 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 I thought it was very, very interesting uh, that, that Senator Heitkamp said that. I mean, even and, – and, Eric, I, I understand your concern, but it's not even – this is Patrick Springer's report. Here, I'm going to quote you from Patrick. He goes, Senator Heitkamp was less effusive in her statement. I mean, it's noticeable. Granted, this is subtle, but – this is it's it's out of character for somebody who again is is trying to to portray this uh this uh oh I'm I'm a bipartisan and I don't like partisan politics and everything else boy that's that's kind of weird. Um but the, you know that's what she's doing. Uh let's see what else do we have going on out there. We have um this was uh, this actually happened. Wrigley was actually at the event. Just just to continue talking about this for a minute. Wrigley was actually at the event I was at yesterday when he got the call um, from the White House, and uh, it was very interesting. But that was immediately the, the the response from a lot of people was you know this finally came through despite you know apparently Heitkamp mucking around on it and in the background. So I I don't know. I it's it, you, I know you disagree with me, Eric. To me, it sticks out. I, as somebody who watches this stuff constantly, it sticks out like a sore thumb. All right. Well, I, I guess we're just going to have to disagree on that because I, I do think that you're reading more into it than, than what you really need to. I mean, right. we, we could go we could go with dragging their feet about uh, the, the Supreme Court nomination and, and how President Obama wanted to make a nomination and the Republicans dragged their feet about that. 
Yeah, I'm not justifying that. I I, I never defended that. Because I, I think the problem is, is is you get into tit for tat, right? Because yeah. the same thing happened to the filibuster. I mean, you want to say, okay, Republicans dragged their feet on Obama's nominee. Okay, but before that, uh, Democrats blew up the um, blew up the filibuster for judicial appointments. Right. So I mean, you go this this tit for tat back and forth, and pretty sure, pretty soon, uh, the protections that were in place around these appointments, the protections that were in place around this process, have eroded, and now it's just a constant partisan food fight over everything. And uh, you know, I, I mean, we could we could go back and follow the breadcrumb all the way back and try to establish who started what, uh, but I don't think any of that justifies Senator Heitkamp in this instance. Being kind of petty and being kind of partisan. And I think she was absolutely working behind the scenes to slow this up to the extent that the greatest extent that she could. She couldn't be very visible about it publicly because it doesn't jibe with the sort of candidate that she's portraying herself to be out on the campaign trail. If, if we really Eric disagrees with me on the Wrigley, uh, the Wrigley appointment. And by the way, somebody emailed in uh, over the break. Uh, it goes, maybe Heitkamp, we're talking about Drew Wrigley, who was appointed by, uh, or, or nominated by President Trump to be North Dakota's U.S. Attorney, um, uh, yesterday. Um, Lyle emails, was maybe Heitkamp is concerned about his integrity, cheating on his wife. Are you not concerned about ethics and integrity? Listen, I was one of the leads on that story. Uh, I helped break that, break that story. Uh, but I think something like that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, it's part, it's out there. It's part of the public record. But, I mean, indicate to me what that has to do with job performance. Right? Exactly. I mean, is he going to be a lesser U.S. attorney because he had a problem in his personal life? Now, public figures like that, it, it's just sort of – it is what it is. And, and at the time, Wrigley was why, – why a lot of people were thinking that he was going to run for governor. And, you know, he was going to be asking Republican delegates to – uh, make him their candidate. Uh, it was something that was was starting to be pretty well known in political circles that it was a thing that happened. I think it was news at the time because the people who might make them their candidate as as Republicans deserve to know it because that sort of a thing can influence an election outcome. And and so if you're going to be a part of that process, it's something that has to be known. Now, does it speak at all to his qualifications to be U.S. Attorney? I don't think it does. I don't even think it really even would speak to his qualifications to hold higher office. Agreed. I but I but I think in that moment because it could influence an election. If you're in a competition, you know, among other kind of like kind of like um well, I don't I don't want to compare it to the Ellison situation because the two really aren't comparable. Ellison's accused of of assault and that's not at all what yeah, so that's that's a shitty that's that, that's a credit comparison. Um so let me um it's 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 a situation where we have um, I, I just I, I don't I don't think it matters. You know, if that's her reasoning, I, I think it's stupid reasoning. Um, I think her reasoning is probably more partisan than that. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, uh, people have I've, I've had other people ask me and I, I don't know how much credence to put in this. Uh, but people part of the part of the people contacting me about why Senator Heitkamp has been such a stick in the mud about Wrigley is if they're worried about the potential for like a gubernatorial race down the road. And I and I think that's always been one of the big reasons why Wrigley has gotten so much attention from Democrats. When even even when he was lieutenant governor, um not even a top of the ticket candidate, he's always drawn a lot of 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 
anger from Democrats and a lot of attacks from Democrats. And I think the reason why is he's long been seen as sort of the next uh, next generation potential candidate for, let's say, governor. I, I, I think Democrats have always been out. And so part of me wonders if, you know, Heitkamp wants to rough him up a little bit on his way into the U.S. attorney thinking, well, he could run for governor down the road. Now, would Heitkamp be thinking, we know she's wanted to be governor during her term in the Senate. We know that she considered running for governor potentially in 2016. Um, she gave that long consideration. Could she consider running for governor again uh, in 2020, 2024? Uh, possibly. And could Wrigley be a potential opponent in one of those elections? Possibly. Or even if, if it's not high camp running, it's, you know, rough. I mean, you, you, I, I, I think it might, part of it might be playing the long game a little bit as well. I think that could be an aspect as well. I don't want to get too much into a conspiracy theory, but I think any time you have sort of a sort of a luminary in in Republican circles who, who's moving up the ladder a little bit, or who's who's getting a, a prominent position to serve and 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 to bring you know positive attention to themselves and do a good job for the public, the sort of things that might commend them to elected office of the future. I think the Democrats are going to try to throw some dirt on that just because and, and Republicans, frankly, would do the same thing to a Democrat. That's that's hardly a, a unique situation to the Democrats. And by the way, speaking of, of, of throwing dirt, it, it kind of seems like I, Eric, I think we're starting to see because like we were talking about yesterday, early voting starts next month, September 27th, I think, is the earliest you can get. Don't take my word for that. Go to the Secretary of State's website. But I think it's September 27th that you can start getting um, absentee ballots and, and begin voting early in the state of North Dakota. I think we're seeing a preview of what what the messaging from Democrats is going to be down the stretch. And I think that messaging is going to be Republicans uh, want to hurt people on the health care issue. Right. Heidi Heitkamp's got an ad out now where she's, uh, you know, she's got somebody, you know, attacking Kevin Kramer for voting to overturn Obamacare. Uh, we've got, um, you know, all sorts of messaging, um, you know, for, from Democrats where they're they're essentially, um, you know, uh, talking about the Medicaid expansion in North Dakota. I mean, they're they're pushing hard on this lawsuit that Attorney General Wayne Stedgham filed, you know, that's terrible and it's awful and it's going to overturn Obamacare and everything's terrible. You know, they're going to run on this and it's. I mean, really, it's the Democrats run on this, I think, just about every cycle, you know, the, the Metascare thing or whatever. It's just a variation on that theme. It's it's another example of, you know, Republicans want to want to hurt people by by, I guess, reducing government services. Uh, but this is I mean, it's, that's how Heitkamp, camp. That's how Senator Heitkamp. camp. It's, it's very much in character for her. She wins elections by making people hate her opponent. And. That's what we're going to see down the stretch. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. House Majority Leader Al Carlson is going to be calling and give us an update. Uh, he's one of the Republicans. He's, he's got a tough race on his hands right now in District 41. He'll talk with me coming up next here on the Rob Report, 970 WDAYM, 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, Hour 2, 970 WDAYM, 93.1 FM. We are going to switch now to District 41, which is the home of... House Majority Leader Al Carlson. Al, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm out fishing today, Rob. Out fishing? How's the fishing? It, it hasn't been very good today, but we're having fun no matter what. Well, I, I tell you what, the worst day fishing is probably better than the best day at work. That's that's what they Absolutely. say anyway. Leave that campaign behind for a few days and go out here and enjoy a little uh, fishing before it really gets uh, into the heat of it in the next couple months. 
Yeah, well, I will t- well, tell us. Let's let's talk about that campaign for a little bit. Uh, I mean, what's what's your message to voters? I mean, I, Democrats are targeting you. I mean, de- you're the you're the majority leader. They like to talk a lot about you. They like to criticize a lot about you. They like to blame you for all the bad things that happened in North Dakota. Uh, as you go out there to to talk to voters and knock on doors and all the things you're doing as part of the campaign, what's your message to voters right now? You know what? North Dakota's in great shape, and it's in great shape because of the policies that we've put in place as Republicans in the last, you know, 20 years. And, and because of that, uh, they, don't, they don't have a lot to run on except to be negative and to criticize. But, Rob, the message is positive. The message is we're doing well. Uh, we've managed our resources well. Uh, we're concerned about our schools, about our vulnerable citizens. We've prioritized those things in our spending uh, we're concerned about infrastructure. We've got a plan to make that even uh, have more uh, money put into the infrastructure. And I think those are the positive things we're going to talk about. Uh, uh, one thing that they like to talk about, one, I mean, because you talk about the, the criticism, obviously, and I want to cover this stuff and let you respond to it. They, they, they say that Republicans have not done a good job managing the budget. And they point to, you know, Governor Burgum has obviously called for uh, more budget reductions uh, as he prepares his executive budget for the 2019 session. Uh, they say that that is a product of that and, and cuts in previous biennia uh, are, uh, are an example of, of Republican mismanagement management of, of, of the budget. What, what's your rebuttal to that? Well, the rebuttal is real easy. We balanced the budget last time with a $1.7 billion shortfall, and we didn't raise anybody's taxes, and we targeted to make sure that our education funding stayed in place, that our human services budget stayed in place, and because of that, we did not raise anybody's taxes. We made government more efficient. Their solution has always been, let's just raise some more money and keep spending at the rate we were. So I'll be glad to talk about that anytime people want to talk about it, because I think that we have proven that you don't need to raise people's taxes to continue the services of government. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com if you want to get any comments or questions. Uh, okay, so, so the, the, uh, the budget issue. Uh, another thing that they, that they are, are critical of is, is obviously ethics th- this time around. And, and Democrats have been pushing to pass, uh, and, you know, an ethics, uh, commission at the legislative session for, for multiple sessions now. They talk about it in election years, say that, that, that the Republican majority is unethical and corrupt uh, and as a matter of fact we have an ethics commission uh ballot measure on the ballot measure one this cycle just yesterday as a matter of fact i moderate moderated the debate over it and, and the proponents up there on that stage they said that they were motivated by the legislature's failure to address this issue uh it, it, that's their characterization the legislature's failure to address this issue in previous sessions what's your response you know i i think that, that first of all that measure hasn't been driven by North Dakotans. If you look where the money came from, it came from out of state. They've done the same thing in numerous states. Uh, they raised all their money. They paid their solicitors to go out and called it a corruption measure. Uh, if you dig deep into it, it's got some constitutional issues. It's just not, you know, we'll live under whatever the people decide, but we have not had problems with the ethics in the legislature. We have a very small staff. We don't have a staff for a legislator. Uh, we rely on our lobbyists to be uh, to give us information we don't rely on. Nobody's giving away their votes because they got a supper from somebody. Um, you got to point to problems, and, and they just can't find it. Uh, and if you say, what are the specifics? Give me names of people. Give me violations that have occurred, and they can't find any. And uh, and by doing that, it tells me right there that, that 
You know, we want we nothing's more important than having ethical legislators on both sides of the aisle. And if anybody that takes out-of-state money and is influenced by out-of-state people, uh, it's the Democrats. And if you look at ours, our our lobbyists, our people, are people that actually do business in our state, and uh, and we're and we use them. And if they're not they're truthful, if we don't agree with what they're doing, we we uh, we don't pass it. So I, I can't see the problem. If they want to do it, you know, the people will decide. I just think the facts need to be out on the table, and they need to know who bought and paid for this. Uh, South Dakota had a terrible mess over this, and they tried to change it during their session. Same people that ran that one are running this one. They're doing it around the country, and they're trying to find a way, just a, some fact or way, to silence the uh, the people that are doing business in our state and want to have the opportunity to do nothing more than to explain to us what their issues are, and then it's up to us to decide whether we want to fix them or not. So I'll be glad to talk about that issue as well. Show me examples. Show me particular problems that have been. You know, they go to as many national meetings as they want to go to. We treat them very fairly. Uh, it's become, unfortunately, a partisan issue, and uh, it shouldn't be. It should be talking about doing business the right way. We do not put up with any of that in our caucus. If there's any ethical behavior, we'll address it. But I honestly, in the, in the 25 years I've been there, Rob, I can't list the number of things that, that, that I would call to be unethical behavior by, uh, by the uh, legislators who have been elected by the people. And if they have been, we have elections, we have processes to remove those people. I want to talk about your district, District 41 specifically. It has been uh, fair to say, I guess you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but just looking at election outcomes, it's been trending towards the Democrats. I mean, they've they've taken two seats out of the, that district now. Uh, you're kind of the last man standing. Now, I hope you're, you're, you're hoping to reverse that trend this cycle. But in, in previous cycles, why has that been the case? Why, why have Democrats been successful in your district? You know, I think uh, as Fargo has matured, as more people have moved into town, we've, we've become a little bit more modern in that district than before. Uh, but on the other hand, they've only replaced one of our members in District 41, and that was Representative Anderson won last time. We still have the Senate in my seat as well. So we believe that those seats belong back in our hands. We, we can prove that they've been very ineffective in whatever they've tried to do in the legislature. And uh, now everybody that's, uh, that's running has a voting record except the one. And, uh, and we will make sure that everybody understands uh, their, those voting records. And I'll gladly stand behind mine. And you know what? In the end, the people decide. You, you take your message to them. You do it on a straight-up, fair basis. And you take it to the people, and they'll decide who they believe will best, best represent them and get things done when they get there. And that's the key ingredient is who can get the job done for the citizens of North Dakota once, once we're serving and passing laws. We have a caller, Karen. Go ahead, Karen. What's up? What do you think about the measure to legalize marijuana? Oh, I knew that would be the first question. I personally am not in favor of that. And once again, it's on the ballot. The people will decide. Uh, I, uh, I think that it, it is a detriment to society and to our kids to allow that to be legal. It's a federally illegal, uh, illegal drug, and uh, it, it, it leads, in my opinion, it's still a gateway drug. Uh, and I and I don't think that we should be passing it. Now, again, the people will decide and we'll deal with whatever happens in the end. Um, the states that have adopted it have done it for the wrong reasons. They've done it because they found a way to tax the heck out of it, and now they're hooked on the revenue. So I think it's a, it's a problem. Um, uh, everybody has their personal opinion. Mine is that I think it's not a good measure for the state. 
Well, speaking of speaking of uh, ballot measures, there's in 2016, and this is something that the legislature has, has gotten a lot of heat for. There was a a measure to legalize recreational marijuana. Now it passed on on the measure, and I've I think I've been very outspoken in pointing out that that although I generally support the legalization of marijuana, uh, that measure had some deep deep flaws in it. The legislature, uh, in a bipartisan fashion, by the way, addressed those flaws, and now we're seeing the rollout, and, and now it seems like we're maybe months away from from seeing maybe some of the first facilities begin to open but there's been a lot of criticism and people saying well the legislature you know they went in and they hamstrung it or they delayed it or they sandbagged it a lot of that stuff flowing around can you tell us i mean what what did the legislature have to do to that measure well first of all they they forgot to decriminalize it so not there isn't a person in the world that could have touched that product in north dakota without being arrested because it wasn't decriminalized so the first thing was it was not it was not structurally fast to even make it work. So what we did is we want to make it safe so that when that person who has uh, chronic back pain or when that uh, the child that has uh, seizures, when they get a pill, they're going to know that it's safe. And when they're taking it, they're going to know it's a safe, secure product. Um, doctors will not prescribe it because they can't legally do it. But on the other hand, compassionate caregivers can, which uh, basically is someone without any medical training. So, and again, they like to blame the legislature for slowing it down, but we, we laid out the guidelines and we turned it over to the health department, and they have been very careful to make sure that this product is safe when it does hit the market. And it will hit the market. Uh, I'm with you. I think it's, it's taken longer than it should. But again, we turned it over to those folks. We were not back in session, and uh, I think they've done a good job, even though it's longer than it should have happened. But medical marijuana will be available. It'll be available at the centuries. And it'll be a safe product for those people using it. You, you in particular, obviously, because you are the leader of your caucus, you are the House Majority Leader, you become a sort of lightning rod, I, I think, when, when <laughs> Democrats want to, I mean, yeah, when Democrats want to attack you know, the, the Republican legislature. I mean, in some ways, most lawmakers don't have this stature, but because you're you know, the House Majority Leader, one of, one of you know, along with uh, Senator Wardner, one of, of two leaders in, in the legislature, um, at, at least at the top tier, uh, you, know, you, you sort of get a level of name recognition maybe commensurate with like say the the, the governor in terms of, of when we talk about you know what direction well, no, the state's no going or whatever about that but you hit you hit the key point rob is that both senator heckman the minority leader in the senate and uh, representative Bach, the minority leader in the house were both on the bill with us and they sat through the whole process they yeah. worked through this legislation with us and in the end they voted for this project that went through so this was a bipartisan effort oh, sure. to make it a safe a safe product yeah, and I wasn't, and I wasn't talking. I, I was more going, uh, where I was going is that obviously Democrats have turned you into a, a, a figure. I mean, you're, you're in a different position, I guess, than your legislative colleagues when you're running for yeah. reelection because you are a, a leader. How, how does that affect the way you campaign when you're going out and you're knocking on doors in District 41? Because in, in a practical matter for the ballot, it doesn't really matter what people statewide think of you. It just matters what yeah. people in District 41 think. And absolutely, and, I, and I, that's why, again, I think they need to be educated on the fact that, well, that our whole goal in this thing was to, uh, to have the will of the people be put forward, but also to put it forward so that take those flaws out of the bill. It was a patchwork bill put together for pieces from out east and out west and from uh, the middle part of the country, and it was patched together. It was not even decriminalized, and we, we were left no choice except to try and do the best we could to make it a legal product when it does hit the market. 
I mean, those, those you can't legally have even marijuana plants in North Dakota. So the the fact that those miracle seeds showed up and now they're going to start growing those is a whole different ballgame. And uh, again, we made it as safe as we could for the people, and I'll gladly take that message to them, saying, when you do get it, and when you do have it prescribed for one of your loved ones, it will be a safe product. And I think in the end, that is the crucial point to this whole thing. You can't even take it outside of the borders of our state because some of our surrounding states it's not legal. And uh, because of that, that product is only unique to North Dakota, just like it is if you go to another state. And for one law, for the first time ever, Rob, we have a law that's more that's less restrictive on medicinal marijuana than it is in the state of Minnesota, which usually is way beyond us in everything they do in terms of being more liberal. Do you uh, do you feel I, I I know you've said that that you don't support the recreational marijuana measure, um, but if it passes, I have a feeling the legislature is going to have to fix some things. I think it's going to pass. I also think that there are some problems with it that the legislature is going to have to address. Now, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, the legislature is going to they're going to sandbag that one like they did the medical marijuana measure," which I do not at all think the legislature did. I think that's unfortunate. But tell us, I mean, when, when you take that up, really, when you're taking up a ballot measure like that, your job at that point is just kind of to respect the will of the people and make it something workable, right? If it passes, we're going to make it workable, and we're not going to try to walk in there and overturn it. If the people vote for it, and I, again, I, I'm not a, a proponent of it, but I know what my job is when I get there, and it's to make it work. If it's passed by the people, we will make it work. Al, any closing uh, comments you want to make? No, other than, uh, you know, we're our economy in North Dakota was uh, pretty much down the last session. You know that. We were way short of revenue. We balanced the books. But our our, uh, our revenue is rebounding not only in the oil sector, but it's rebounding in our sales and income tax, which are the key uh, fiscal drivers in our, uh, in, our, in our revenue that we have to spend as a state. And we're going to make sure that, again, we'll prioritize our spending. Uh, Governor Bergham is, is extremely set on, on trying to reinvent government and to make it more efficient um, and, for, and to consolidate things. And we're going to continue to join him in that fight. So I think that I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, that the state, the bright days are again uh, ahead of us. Uh, we've come out of this little recession we were in, and we're seeing a rebound in our revenues, not to the point where we're going to be flush with dollars, but it's going to be good. The next session is important one to, again, set the trend for the future for North Dakota. And just one, one last, that made me think of one last question. What are we going to do to make sure we don't get on a roller coaster? Because you're right, I, revenues are bouncing back, and obviously they're not bouncing back to the levels we saw during the, you know, the heights of the boom era, uh, like 2015, that, that era. But w- what are we doing to ensure that we're not on a roller coaster where revenues bounce back and we spend a bunch and then revenues fall and we cut again? Are we going to be more cautious this time? You know, we have to be more cautious and, and, we had no choice when the boom was full was full blown, and we sent a billion three out west to deal with their infrastructure. <clears throat> they still have a lot of problems out there, but we have fixed a lot of them. And we need to make sure that we don't create a tremendous dependence, uh, Rob, on on putting so much of that oil revenue in the general fund that is this thing, which is it's cyclical, it goes up and down. That we put ourselves in a situation where we can't afford to do the things we'd like to do. So we just need to be cautious. We need to spend on our priorities. And we need to make sure that we have a secure future for our citizens. Al, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me on. That's House Majority Leader Al Carlson. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDYM, 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Oh.
Welcome back, Rob Report. Just finished up uh, with House Majority Leader Al Carlson, and he got we got some emails from people, not Carlson fans. Uh, Jerry emails, no one likes you, Al. You're gone. Uh, wow. Another email from uh, Dwayne says he is so far out of touch. Wow. Um. Yeah. I. I mean. I don't. I. I don't know. I. Carlson has. has Democrats have, have put a lot of time and effort into turning Carlson into this sort of uh, pinata for for Democrats hating the legislature, right? And it's. I mean, it's tough when you're in that position, when you're in a leadership position, when you're the House Majority Leader. Then you know people who who stoke up because it's always weird, right? Like. You look at the approval ratings for Congress, right, Eric? And they're typically, like, low, like, if not single digits in, like, the teens, right? Yep. People don't approve of, of Congress in the aggregate. And yet most of the incumbents get elected every cycle. I don't think that's because of fraud or anything like that. If Americans were really – it's it's mostly it's I'm upset with uh, Congress in general, but I like my guy or I like my gal, is usually the attitude, right? Like, our people are okay. It's everybody else's people who stink. But then you have somebody like Carlson. The dynamic becomes Carlson becomes an embodiment for the entire legislature. So you have that dynamic going on where people maybe like the people who are elected from their district but don't like the legislature as a whole for whatever reason. I think a lot of that's born in just sort of public apathy. They don't follow the legislature that closely, so they just take sort of a a, a knee-jerk position on the legislature generally or Congress generally. But – you know, I, I think what happens is when you're when you're one of the leaders, you take the hits for the legislature as a whole, rightly or wrongly. And I think that's that's you know one of the things Carlson has to contend with. It's one of the things you know Democrats have have done to, to sort of hang you know everything everybody doesn't like about the legislature around his neck. But that's a district where Democrats have been you know, one of the one of the rare places in North Dakota where Democrats have been having some success. And, uh, you know, Carlson's got to contend with that. So we'll see what happens. We're going to take another break. We'll come back with Eric Wang. He's a senior fellow, Institute for Free Speech. We're going to talk more about Measure 1. Folks, there are some First Amendment problems with that measure. We'll get to this right after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report 970 WDMI AM 93.1 FM. All right, Measure 1 on the November ballot. And, uh, and by the way, again, early voting starts next month. Uh, so the and by the way, I feel like Eric. I don't, do you feel this way? I feel like because we just the measures just got confirmed for the ballot. Like we just got the numbers last week, and early voting starts next month. I I feel like I I don't know if we should move up the process or something. I feel like there's not enough time for a full campaign here before people start locking in their votes. I, I, I realize that that yeah. making campaign season longer, but I don't know what to do about it. I mean, I think it gets hard. Like, especially with ballot measures, like you don't know. I mean, you're mostly kind of dealing with volunteer or at least ad hoc organizations that are for and against these things. You don't know if the if a given measure is going to make the ballot. And then all of a sudden it's on the ballot. And now the groups who might be opposed to it have to scramble to try to, you know, form a coalition and get money together to, to, to present a, an argument for it. It just seems like too short a timeline for me. Well, you could, I don't. You could you could also argue though that these that these coalitions that want to go against it should be prepared if if it does get on the ballot. I can tell you, it's hard to raise money if you don't know if it's going to be on the ballot or not. Well, you I mean, could, it's, you it's could make it, other preparations beforehand. Um, yeah, it's not that easy. I mean, it's not that easy, especially when you're competing with other, you know, like the Senate campaign and other places where politically engaged people could put their time and put their money. It's hard to dedicate something 
uh, you know, resources to something that, that may not even come to fruition. So I, I don't know. Something to think about anyway. Our guest now is Eric Wong. He is a senior fellow from the Institute for Free Speech. Eric, how you doing? Good. How are you? I am doing fine. You have an analysis out on uh, on Measure 1 here in North Dakota. Now, that, of course, is the uh, – everybody they're calling it the ethics measure, ethics commission measure. Eth- creating an ethics commission, though, is just one – part of it uh but you've done an analysis and and you're finding some free speech issues can you t- tell us about it yes that's right there's actually three uh main components of this measure and as you mentioned the ethics commission is only one very narrow portion of this measure um i, I think the, the the main um the main concern for free speech is the first part of this uh initiative uh, which uh, would require the state legislature to enact laws that, quote-unquote, require public disclosure of the ultimate and true source of funds uh, for basically any attempts to influence uh, state elections or to uh, influence state government action. Uh, now, that's very broad and vague language, and it's unclear. Uh, you know, there are several uh, important ways in, in, in which that could affect free speech. Uh, first of all, it's unclear what the content of speech uh, would be that would trigger these laws. And then second of all, um, equally importantly, it's unclear uh, you know, what exactly, you know, which exact source of funds would have to be publicly reported. Uh, and so you know, one example uh, that, uh, of something that could be affected by this is uh, you know, news shows like yours or news and commentary, because obviously uh, we, those could be said to influence uh, state elections or state government actions, uh, and then that raises the question: You know, would your uh, would your advertising sources have to be publicly reported? Would your other sources of business revenue uh, have to be publicly pr- reported? Uh, and and that could be very problematic for a lot of uh, groups and entities that are speaking uh, in uh, North Dakota. Well, and it's not just I, I have a feeling that a lot of people listening to this, you know, might be people who aren't involved in, in the media or people who aren't sure. involved with, say, a political group are going to say, well, big deal. Why shouldn't you people have to report all that stuff? Um, and and I, I think the rebuttal, I think the rebuttal to that is I don't see any exemption for private individuals. I mean, it's a very low threshold. It's 200 bucks. Uh, if you if you put two hundred bucks into into hosting a, a blog or a website, that, or, that, or, is, that is a that is a very good point. Uh, this this uh, measure is written so in such a vague way that you're right. Individuals could very well have to report their sources of of you know their ultimate and true source of funds. In which case they would have to report their uh, you know sources of, in, of income, whether it's from their uh, businesses or from their investment you know small bank investments, uh, savings accounts. And, and whatnot, uh, it's unclear. What if, uh, and, what and if somebody, really, and I, you know, obviously most individuals would yeah. not want to have to publicly report that information whenever they want to speak about some policy issue in the state or, or some political issue. Uh, and, and, and that could be quite, uh, 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 you know, inhibiting for most people. Well, what about somebody, and this was an example, I actually moderated the, the Greater North Dakota Chamber of Commerce hosted an event uh, at which we had a, a panel discussion about this measure with proponents and, and opponents, and I, I was the moderator. One of the uh, the opponents of the measure, the, the example he used is, well, if you live in, you know, one of the extreme corners of the state uh, and there's a bill 
before the legislature in in Bismarck that you think is going to be bad and you want to or you want to support it, but but you want to basically go to Bismarck and and make your voice heard and show up at a at a committee hearing and testify on it, which in North Dakota you you can if you're a citizen you can go in there you can listen to the testimony and you can testify and that that testimony uh, influences the outcome of the because the legislators sit there and they listen to you and you they consider your arguments you're influencing the process. Well, if you hop in your truck uh, and you drive. I don't know, depending where you're at, 200 miles down to Bismarck uh, and then 200 miles back, 400 miles of mileage. Uh, plus, you know, maybe you have to stay overnight. You get a hotel room. You get a couple of meals. Uh, <laughs> do we have to report all that to the government now? That, that's yet another very good question. Uh, you know, that is uh, most people don't think of that as lobbying, but that actually is lobbying. And it is also an attempt to influence state government action. And both of right. those, uh, you know, both of those activities are right. clearly addressed in the uh, text of this right. initiative. Because the text, the and, text says. And, and I'll I tell have... you, my, my, my group, the Institute for Free Speech, is actually representing an individual in Missouri who did, you know, basically what you just described. He spent some of his own money money uh, on uh, visiting and speaking with uh, state legislators in Missouri, and uh, the Missouri Ethics Commission is prosecuting him uh, for failing to register and report as a lobbyist, uh, which this uh, initiative, if it were passed, could uh, very well do do the same, as you just uh, suggested. Now, now, North Dakota law is pretty explicit. They said basically, you know, individuals advocating on their own behalf or on behalf of their own businesses or whatever don't necessarily have to register as a lobbyist, but the text of this measure... I'm reading a direct quote. It says, to lobby or otherwise influence state government action. I mean, there's no exemption here for private individuals. There's no exemption here uh, if you want to run an ad in your local newspaper saying, uh, hey, this ballot measure stinks, don't vote for it, and you're just spending your own money. Uh, there's no exemptions here. Now, uh, there's also, in, in, in your analysis, Eric, you cite some, some Supreme Court precedents or some court precedent about putting reporting regulations on on speech T- tell us a little bit about some of the history there because this this seems onerous to the fact that you're gonna i mean if i'm a private individual and all of a sudden to speak out on an issue i've got to worry about complying with all these reporting requirements and everything to me that's that's inhibiting to the point of being unconstitutional that's my personal view have the courts adjudicated this before Yes, it, it, it has come up uh, several times over the past few decades, uh, and uh, this goes to your original point about uh, you know what what is the big deal about uh, reporting uh, most. Most you know most people in the public don't really uh, have a good grasp of this uh, and don't really understand what the implications are. Uh, but you know this goes back to um, one of the landmark Supreme Court decisions uh, called NAACP versus Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement, when state officials in Alabama wanted to get a list of all of the members and all of the donors to the NAACP. And uh, you know as most people might recognize, uh, th- that would have been very detrimental and very inhibiting to the civil rights organizations. Um, and, and some people might say that, well, you know, that example is is very outdated nowadays, but it's really not. If you think about um, a lot of the contentious but important policy issues that we debate uh, both at the federal and state levels, you know, issues like abortion or issues like gun control or issues like gay rights, you know, if, if, uh, the, if Planned Parenthood had to uh, publicly report all of its donors or if uh, the National Right to Life, or if the Susan B. Anthony list had to report all of their donors, you might very well imagine that those individuals might be even more at each 
other's throats than they already are and might, uh, you know, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, resort to harassment or threats or even violence in many cases, as we've seen in, in the public sphere. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate, but, but that is uh, one of the uh, results. That is one of the main dangers of these types of uh, laws that require reporting of donors. And therefore, the Supreme Court and other lower courts have said that you have to really carefully balance the uh, purported governmental interests in these reporting laws against the the interests that the donors have in remaining uh, private and just uh, you know engaging in these issues through uh, through the protection of these larger organizations without having to be individually called out for for their private associations. Uh, one of the uh, by the way seven zero one two nine three nine thousand. We're going to join the program eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday dot com. Now there's other parts of this measure. There's the ethics commission portion. There's some stuff about you know lobbying. You know there's a cooling off period for people who serve in office before they can become a lobbyist. And there's some other provisions. I'm focusing on the speech one because I know Eric. That's that's sort of the thrust of your organization's interest. Now yesterday during the panel when the proponents um, the organization calling themselves North Dakotans for Public Integrity, when when the opponents brought these concerns up, their rebuttal was essentially, well, that's ludicrous. Nobody's going to interpret this law that way. Nobody's going to interpret it as, you know, some farmer uh, who's got a beef with a bill driving his own truck to Bismarck to testify before the legislature. Nobody's going to interpret it that way. Um, you know, so I, they almost seem to be sort of, rebl- you know, relying on the forbearance of the courts. If somebody, you know, says, hey, you violated this law and it gets into the courts that we're going to assume that the courts are going to interpret it a certain way. That seems a little silly to me. Yeah, and I would just further ask, you know, whether the the uh, North Dakotans for Public Integrity are actually campaign finance attorneys or First Amendment law attorneys, uh, because if they're not, uh, they might not recognize uh, some of the legal subtleties in the language that they've proposed here. Um, I can tell you that I, I look at the campaign finance and lobbying laws in all 50 states and also at the federal level, and I have great difficulty understanding uh, exactly what the limits of this uh, this measure are. And even and moreover, and I want to stop you right there because moreover, you know, as I point out in my analysis, North Dakota already has uh, a very comprehensive campaign finance and lobbying statutes. This measure would add a constitutional overlay on top of the existing statute, and in, in these circumstances, it's very unclear how to interpret the provisions of this measure against the pre-existing laws uh, that already exist in well, the state. It- Eric, I, th- I think you just said something very important there because you, you're somebody who ana- at, you, you analyze this stuff for a living. You have a lot of expertise in this area. You look at it at the federal level. You look at it at state level. This is your job. Most people who engage in political discourse because, you know, we have a ballot measure about recreational marijuana, they're just people. Right. They're, they're dentists. They're they're grocery clerks. They're all they're, they're the electorate. They're people. They don't have any expertise in this area. But you put something like this in law. I feel like it's going to make people afraid to engage in the political process. It's going to make them afraid to want to turn up. I mean, already it's a little intimidating to show up at the legislature, right? It is. I've seen people do it before. They talk about how nervous it is because it's tough. You get in there, everybody's looking at you. You're talking with people who deal with public policy all the time. It's intimidating. Now you add on all these reporting requirements and all these arcane laws and everything, and they're trying to understand, well, what can I legally do? What can I not do? How can I spend my money? How can I advocate in my own interests? And I I feel like that in and of itself is, is chilling to free speech. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, just a few points in response to that. Uh, you know, most of our cl- most of our clients are very large corporations, and they're fortunate enough to have large amounts of money to throw at us to, uh, you know, basically help them navigate these complex laws. Uh, but for the average uh, American, uh, regardless of where they are, uh, they they just don't have the resources to uh, hire expensive attorneys to decipher these uh, complex laws, and they shouldn't have to. I mean, the Supreme Court has said that. You should not have to hire a campaign finance attorney in order to engage in First Amendment-protected free speech. Uh, the other issue that that's peculiar uh, to this ballot measure is that it, in, it empowers any uh, resident taxpayer in North Dakota to sue to enforce the provisions of this uh, uh, constitutional amendment. So if this passes, and you, you could very well have uh, you know individuals who don't like what uh, their fellow North Dakotans are saying in the public sphere, and you could have just have people suing each other willy-nilly and alleging violations of this uh, this constitutional amendment, and then it would be up to, uh, you know, the, the state courts to uh, adjudicate those. Uh, but, but in the meantime, uh, you're going to have a lot of uh, unwitting uh, citizens being caught up yeah. uh, in the legal, legal process as a result of their um, exercise of First Amendment rights. Well, it's uh, it's it's not a good thing. And listen, I'm I'm in the favor. I'm in favor of transparency. I'm in favor of accountability. I generally like reporting requirements for campaigns and things like that. But we ought to do it the right way. I think this measure's got a lot of problems. It, it's got some good things in it that aren't so bad. But we don't get to pick and choose which parts we're going to enact or which parts we're not. It's an up or down vote on the whole thing. And uh, in in totality, it's got some real problems. I think, Eric. Thank you for your time helping us uh, explain this. Thank you so much, Rob. I, and I've got Eric's full analysis up at sayanythingblog.com if you want to check that out. i got to take a break. I'll be right back. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDYAM 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back to Rob Report, 970 uh, WDYAM 93.1 FM. Didn't get a lot of uh, – don't have a lot of time here because we um, – Went along with uh, Eric Wong from the uh, Institute for Free Speech, and and listen, I mean, they're they're just a problem. The measure says what it says, and I I, I suspect the rebuttal from supporters of the measures are going to be, well, you're you're exaggerating, you're taking things too far. But when the measure says that there's reporting requirements for for any any attempt to influence the government, well. I mean, d- democracy is based on people influencing the government, right? I mean, it's government of the people for the people, right? So when people act, when you when you speak, when you write a letter to the editor, when you write a blog post, when you post on social media, when you run an ad in the newspaper, when you run an ad on television, those are all examples of influencing the government. And this measure would create reporting requirements for all of that. Um, it's, it's a problem. Um, but anyway, that's it for me today. You, I'll be uh, back next week, Monday. Jay Thomas shows straight ahead. Uh, he's live uh, from the Harlow dealership. That's going to be fun. Stay tuned for that. You can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday on 970 WDYAM 93.1 FM, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at anythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. You're a-